What's up, everyone? This is Justin Gordon from Vitalize Venture Capital, and welcome to Talking Venture, a show where you'll learn how to build and invest in startups, featuring interviews with startup founders and operators, angel investors and venture capitalists, as well as deep dives into a variety of aspects of the startup world from the team here at Vitalize. On today's episode, we have Austin Allred, co-founder and CEO of Lambda School, the online coding school that invests in you, can train remotely to become a software engineer or data scientist and pay no tuition until you're hired. It's a company that's raised more than $120 million in venture capital. And on today's episode, we talk about hiring, incentives, the program curriculum they have, how they raise capital, automation and efficiency, how Austin got started with angel investing, and much more. Let's dive in. Austin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you taking the time. Lots to talk about with Lambda School. Uh, so many good things to say about Lambda School, and it's come a long way in the last four years. For people who aren't familiar, though, what are you guys doing today? Yeah, so uh, we train people to be software engineers and data scientists in live online classes. Um, and one of the things that's unique about Lambda School, you know, relative to other kind of code boot camps, for quite a bit longer, uh, we tend to work backwards directly from employers. Um, so we just opened applications yesterday. It won't be yesterday by the time you all hear this, but today it's yesterday. Um, the program we launched in partnership with Amazon, where we built the curriculum together and it's exactly to Amazon's specifications and of course, um, other companies as well. But the one of the big differentiators between Lambda School and other schools is Lambda School uh, students pay, generally speaking, pay no upfront tuition and instead pay us a percentage of their income for a little bit after they're hired. Um, so that opens access to a lot more people. It makes the school very incentivized to make sure that you get hired. Um, more incentivized than you would even possibly believe. Um, and, and yeah, we think that's really important. We, we believe in the power of incentives. Yeah, and there's so much that changes when you do have those incentives aligned or in a particular way. And and for the context as well, like how big is Lambda School now? Students or anything you can share numbers because uh, listening to past podcast episodes and everything, you get kind of outdated numbers, especially when you raised seventy plus million dollars recently. So I'd love to hear more about uh, yeah, how big the company is now, roughly. Yeah, uh, it, it fluctuates at any given time. We have different starting times for different programs. Um, so. Uh, Student-wise, we're around 2,000 concurrent students. Staff-wise, around 100 full-time staff. Um, and then we have a bunch of part-time and contractor staff on top of that. But, but that gives you an idea of where we're at. One of the things I want to go back to, so just in the, be the beginning of starting Lambda School, did you know right away in the beginning that this had to be a venture-backed, raise a ton of money type of thing? Or did you think there was a path forward at a different route, perhaps? Also? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Um, so we, we got into Y Combinator, which I saw as like, honestly, the last money we were going to raise, um, which is a little bit crazy. That's, you know, $120,000 investment. We've now raised north of 120 million. Um, but when we were in Y Combinator, it was a, it was a very practical decision for us. So I actually sat down with Jeff Ralston and Daniel Gross, who were our partners at the time, um, our, our Y Combinator partners. And we, we talked through like if Lambda School should raise money because um, we were bootstrapped, we were profitable, um, we had a path to remaining profitable, but basically we ran the numbers. So I actually, I could find this model. I built a model to say, okay, if we go the venture backed route, you know, we can, let's say hypothetically, we can raise a couple million dollars. That means we can grow in this way. And the constraint was really like, how many students can we handle right now? Um, because, and it still is to, to a certain extent, um, the constraint because most schools are kind of fighting to get people to, to enroll and pay, but we, we have the opposite problem. Enrollment is easy. We have to make sure everybody gets hired and that's how we yep. get paid. Um, and so we basically built it out and said, okay, you know, five years from now, if we go the bootstrapped path, where do we think we end up? Um, you know. And obviously you're very much making up numbers. Um, how big will the company be? Uh, what would valuation be? What would revenue be? What would, how much of the company would we own? How much influence would investors have? What would the board look like? Because you're kind of making it up. Um, and then, okay, a bootstrapped path, what would that look like? Where would it go? What would the impact be? How much influence would we have in the world? How, you know, and when we modeled it out, it just became clear from a, from like a numbers standpoint that for where we were at the given time, venture capital actually made sense. 
Um, and there are trade-offs that you know, I raised in the past that I think I was pretty well aware of. Um, and I think that's a, it's a trap that some people fall into um, where you raise just because that seems like what everybody else is doing. <laughs> Or you bootstrap because that seems sexy and you want to own all of the company and answer to nobody. And those are both reasonable paths uh, and there are trade-offs to each. Um, and I think it behooves a founder to understand what, what those trade-offs are and um, to the best, as, you know, as best as you can predict, um, what the different worlds would look like in, in each of those scenarios. For, for you guys, for your team then back then, was it, what were some of those trade-offs maybe you were thinking through and what, what mattered most to you? Because for you know, any founders listening who are maybe debating on that path, uh, I think you have a good context of having run companies before and also obviously having raised a lot of money with Lambda School. What were some of those things in terms of trade-offs at that point? Yeah. Um, so one of, the, one of the big trade-offs was, candidly, I'd, have a, I'd had a negative experience with VCs in the past. So there wasn't a trusting relationship. And I feel differently now where... Um, now I feel like I know how to vet VCs and find people that are incentives aligned with you. But in a, in a past company, um, I worked with folks that I believed were not as incentives aligned with me. Um, <laughs> yeah. and obviously, you, you know, your 80% incentives aligned because they own equity in your company at the end of the day. Um, but those differences, depending on how different people view the world can be, can be pretty stark. Um, and then the other one is, you know, when you raise money, you VCs are looking for you to have a big exit. So it limits the options in terms of, you know, if, if you sell your company for $5 million and you own 100% of it, that's a huge win. If VCs have put in $3 million and you sell for $5 million, that's not really, I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not a huge win anymore, right? Yeah. Um, so you need to go bigger. Um, and then there's dilution. And for us, it was really the trade-off of, for lack of a better way to describe it, time and accessibility, um, where you know, we didn't really want to hire people with the cash we had in the bank. So we couldn't grow. And we were constrained by the number of people we could hire because if you hire more people, you can let in more students. And we had thousands of students beating down the door. Um, and you know, frankly, there was a time when both my myself and my co-founder, when, when we both said, you know, we could just pay ourselves two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year and answer to nobody, and that would we could run this forever. Um, and we we were on that path, and we could have done that. Um, so we decided, you know, when you look at all the numbers, basically the opportunity was so big that we would have been foolish to not raise. Um, but there are there are companies where, you know, you could run those numbers and say, given our expected growth and given the dilution and given the, you know, potential market size and all the other things, you know what, it makes sense to not raise money, even though it's always tempting to have more money in the bank. Um, and it feels like that is the problem you need to solve until the money hits the bank. And then you realize it's not actually the problem. Um, it may be one of the problems, but that, you know, the money does not a company make. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of things to think about with that, and going through that process. And you know, you had a bad experience previously in, in VC, with VCs, at least. And, and this time, what were you looking for in the investors you had? Like, what were you anything different or anything particular, or like targeting certain people, or knowing what you wanted from that side of things, knowing you were taking capital? Yeah, I think the big thing was like true alignment, um, and I say that not just in the sense of like, you know, what ideas do you have for the product, but like. What does success look like for you? And if, you know, as an example, if you're a VC and I decide to sell the company for $20 million two years later, what would your reaction be to that? Is that a win for you or is that a loss for you? Because there are VCs where that's a huge loss, right? Where, you know, if, and I think that's where a lot of founder you know, founders have one stock and VCs have a giant portfolio of stocks. And I recognize that even more now that I do a little investing. Um, but for me, this is the only thing. I am not, you know, Lambda School is not one of the many stocks in my portfolio that and one of, I need one of the 10 to make it. So, you know, the classic example is, let's say you have a 100% chance of your company being worth a hundred million dollars or a 10% chance of it being worth $2 billion. Right. 
rationally, you should take the, the 20% chance of it. All right. I think I just messed those numbers up. So 100% chance of $100 million, 20% chance of it being, uh, you know, let's say a billion dollars. So yeah, yeah, net net 10, 100 million versus 200 million. Rationally, you should go for the 200 million, but, you know, behavioral economists would tell you, actually $100 million is a lot of money. And so why why risk it? Um, and that's where a lot of the, the difference between founder incentives and VC incentives arise. Um, I think there, there are ways that folks have found to kind of align those in, in different ways, but, but yeah, fundamentally when, if the company is really successful, they do start to diverge at a certain point. Yeah. And I think it's, that goes to show like founders have to understand the game they're playing, obviously when taking VC money and understand the economics involved and also the VCs you're working with and what they do expect and what they are out of the portfolio. Cause even, you know, angels may expect something completely different in these earlier stages when you get that funding versus depending on the VC firm, much different situation there. And, and one of the things that came up in, in terms of asking for questions is around hiring. And there's a lot that we can get into with that. So what I want to start with though, first is with your team. So with, with building your team at Lambda school, how has that gone? how did you approach that in the early days? Uh, and I'd love to walk through kind of how that's evolved over time. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, obviously I have a lot of experience and knowledge now that I didn't have then. And I assume three years from now, the same will you know, be true. And I look back at where I am today and say the same thing. Um, but some of the things that are difficult to appreciate about being an early stage founder is it was hard to get anybody to join us, right? Um, yeah. I mean, coming out of Y Combinator, we had, you know, the Y Combinator check mark, but the only reason people joined us is because people knew me and I would, ha you know, they would talk to their friends who knew me and they said, Hey, if, if Austin's working on it, you should join. Cause from most early employees vantage, we were yet another code school of the, who knows how many code schools. Um, I have a perfectly cushy engineering job and I'm on my way to this kind of a salary. <laughs> Um, rationally, you can view the equity as worth zero. Um, and it's, it's hard to get somebody to join. Uh, now it's a little bit different. Now, you know, the game is, you know, you might be talking to somebody at Google for the, you know, or maybe Google's a bad example. Um, but you know, someone who could make a million dollars a year somewhere, and you're yeah. trying to convince them to become a VP at your company and, you know, what are the trade-offs of cash versus lifestyle versus equity versus all these other things? And it's, it's similar, um, but it's different um, because there's, there's more credibility. There's more proof. All the numbers are bigger. You're looking at generally more executive, more proven people. Um, and sometimes you, you know, we've had, I've had plenty of conversations with somebody who's at, you know, Facebook making a million dollars a year and they're just, making the rational decision saying, okay, well, how can I be sure that risk adjusted, you guys are paying me a million dollars a year. Um, so I need, you know, 3% of the company. And it's just like out of the bound of where the company is at that point. And sometimes yeah. you can't make ends meet. Um, so it, it changes pretty drastically as com the companies grow and develop and as the equity slice shifts and as the av availability of cash shifts and as the, kind of social proof behind the company shifts. Um, and it, yeah, so it's a super different strategy when you're a hundred people trying to hire VPs versus when you're two people trying to find anybody who's crazy enough to come <laughs> on board. In those, in those early days, especially for other, you know, other kind of, whether it be pre-seed or seed, they've gotten to founders with those founders at that earliest of stages, obviously there's a much smaller teams. Anything advice-wise, tips-wise for them around hiring specifically engineers or uh, that engineering talent that they need to build their tech companies? Because that's that's the name of the game, especially early on. Like anything that's helpful in that earliest stage, um, just go to Lambda School and get like, how do you, what's the idea? Yeah, there? I mean, <laughs> selfishly, we've definitely built programs to help folks do that um, and to, to help bring on the right mix of junior and senior folks so that you can hit the ground running. Um, because you know, as a startup, you don't want to, it, it's hard to have a time horizon where you want to train someone who's junior. You want to have somebody who hits the ground running. So we've actually built programs at Lambda School that bring on senior folks along with junior. So 
the, the way I describe it is like senior engineers set the direction and they, you need senior engineers to guide junior engineers. And then a lot of the junior engineers actually end up being the workhorses who write a lot of lines of code um, and get you features shipped quickly. So, so we've built a few programs for that. Um, but if I uh, pretend like I, it's illegal for me to mention Lambda School, um, then I would say, you know, you are really talking to, you're, you're almost, some of your early engineers are taking a similar size of bet as angel investors are. And you talk to them in a similar way that you would talk to someone who is investing. Because, you know, to be frank, unless you're a crazy anomaly in venture land, there's no way you can match cash for cash with the big, you know, the big fang companies or even, you know, the more well-funded startups. Um, so people are taking a risk in hope of equity, generally speaking. Or, you know, you can make an argument for lifestyle or mission or other stuff. Um, but, but generally speaking, they are... You are convincing them to invest in you the same way you're in convincing an angel investor to invest in you. Anything in that in that process that helpful in the earliest stages to do that? I mean, for you, was it just that the mission around Lambda School, what you're doing, how big that was going to be? Because obviously, if you look at Lambda School, you can see like you can imagine how big this thing gets, and with only a few thousand people, how big it can continue to grow. But was that what helped you early on in terms of convincing those people, those first, you know, five, ten, whatever, and maybe people? Uh, yeah. So the the problem we had in the early days of Lambda School was, you know, how is this different, and how do you differentiate? How do you build a moat? Now that's not our problem. Now the problem is, okay, does this actually work, mm. and can you make the financials, you know, add up? And obviously, if you can do that, you're going to take over everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that that was. That, that was an argument I had with early investors. I'm like, no, look, this is 10x harder to build than, you know, a mom and pop code school that charges $15,000 a head. Um, it can get way, way, way bigger and change everything, but it's harder. It's just fundamentally harder. And not until we got to that stage did people say, oh, this is actually hard. So, now, you know, all of the, well, what is your moat questions slowly became, is this possible questions or like, <laughs> how, how do you make it work? Um, so for me in the early days, it was describing that, describing that, look, actually not taking upfront tuition is a fundamentally different business than, you know, taking a check and training somebody. And how is that different? And what does that cause you to do differently? And how do we think about that? How do you use data and admissions? How do you build um, a feedback mechanism that improves the courses. How do you uh, make sure that once an employer hires one student, they come back for more and that becomes a moat over time and you have relationships with hiring companies. Um, so, you know, really helping people wrap their minds around that, especially at the early stages for a lot of the great companies um, or some of the early moving companies, there isn't an easy analogy. So it really does take people a while to wrap their minds around what you're actually trying to do. Um, so it's a little bit easier if you're Uber for X and people are like, oh, it's a two-sided marketplace and you need this and you need that. But if you're Uber, um, then you have to describe, okay, there are these things called private drivers and we can get you one, but you know, in the end, and I don't even know if this, this was the vision then, but in the end, you know, we can connect drivers and riders, this two-sided marketplace, and then you know, anything that moves, we can help you, you know. Um, so helping people understand the vision. And then at the end of the day, they're betting on the team being able to execute that vision, assuming the vision is ambitious enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot there with, we could dive into. One of the things I want to go back to in terms of building this team, you mentioned kind of bigger now when you're like a hundred person team, obviously it's a bit different when you're just starting off. In scaling that, has it always been internal or have you gone out and gotten recruiters? Have you, how have you thought through that decision? Because that's something that always kind of comes up, keeping internal. I was talking to uh, John Dahl from Mux. Uh, they had a combination of things, recruiters versus not recruiters. For you at Lambda School, how have you gone through that in terms of uh, hiring and building the team as you've scaled here? Yeah, and I think it changes based on what the stage of the company is. Um, I mean, there were times when we had a recruiting team. And recruiting was our biggest challenge. Um, 
and it, it will always remain a challenge to to some extent. And there are times when um, for VP roles that I was very particular about, it took us a year to find somebody to hire. Um, and at that, you know, during that time, stuff is on fire and everybody's saying, we need a VP of this. And <laughs> it's not there. We're getting there. <laughs> um, so the, if I could go back in time, the, the advice that I give um, to founders is be super, super careful about the, not even the level of experience of the first 10 people, but the culture of the first 10 people and who they are going to hire. Um, so everybody in your first 10 people, imagine yourself hiring like 50 of them. Uh, Cause that's basically what it becomes. And if you hire somebody, oftentimes I see founders miss in the non-obvious direction, which is they find somebody who has the pedigree and they have the credentials, but they're not there for the right reasons or they're focused on the wrong things. Or oftentimes it's just, I'm going to build exactly what I had at the company I just came from because that's all I know, even if that's not a fit for the existing company. Um, so, so yeah, just... I mean, the mental model for me is imagine 50 of this person or, you know, you can change 20% of that person at a time, but not <laughs> 50% because your early hires will, you know, they'll bring their friends, they'll, they'll literally hire people. And that is what makes the company. Um, and, you know, a mishire in the early days, especially if you don't fire quickly, you know, compounds. One of the things I want to go back to, you mentioned early on, obviously with, with Amazon, you said doing a program with them and talk about the curriculum and clearly with the incentives and how the, everything works with Lambda School, you're incentivized to help people get jobs. Like that is ultimately what you need to do to make the business model work. To that point, how is that process of working with companies, figuring out the employer side of it? Because there's the education side to you know build up quality candidates. Then there's the employer side and finding all these people. How did you attack that problem of figuring out employers and who you'd partner with and how that partnership would work? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, you know, starting out, my theory was that if you train people to be good enough engineers, they will just get themselves hired. Um, what experience has shown us is that's true about half of the time. Um, so there are people that if they're a good enough engineer, they're somehow going to work their way into a high paying job. Yeah. Um, and then there are people who you need to nudge a little bit and train and help. Um, and then there are a lot of people and I was, this is something that I didn't appreciate because it's the, you know, the problem of when you build a product for yourself, you build exactly what you would use. And if a user is a little bit different than you, um, you know, job searching is a fundamentally different skill than engineering. And sometimes the best engineers have zero desire and zero knowledge about how to job search and how to interview and how to do all that stuff. Um, so over time, and you know, I tried to fix it for a couple of years by just, well, let's make better engineers, better engineers, better engineers. Um, but that's, that doesn't solve the problem, right? Um, so now we have everything from, you know, we have a giant, at any given time now we have 200 students who are in different levels of interview processes. Um, and we have a big partnerships team that's, you know, working with employers. And there are some students who are incredible engineers, but are just, you try to help them interview as much as you can. Um, so for those folks, we created what we call the fellows program, which is basically Lambda, Lambda school will cover the first month of that person's salary while you try them out. Um, and instead of, you know, going through a long interview process where, you know, you're trying to get to know them, it's just, Hey, let's start on the job today and we'll show you what they can do. And if you don't hire them, you don't pay anything. And that has been remarkably successful for a certain type. Um, and then, you know, the, the hope of partnerships like Amazon and what we're learning even more so now than we anticipated in the future is that. And we always work backwards from employers in the sense of, hey, you know, everybody wants to hire an engineer. Let's talk to everybody and figure out what kind of engineer they want to hire. But this is very specifically, you know, Amazon is dying to hire people who have exactly this skill set. And then you go talk to 20 other companies and they're saying, oh my gosh, yes, they're 
tens of thousands of code school grads, but none of them can do this thing. So we have to hire them and then spend four months training them to do this thing. Yep. Can you just give me exactly that? Um, and, you know, Amazon is unique in the sense that they, I mean, they're Amazon, right? They hire more, I'm sure that they will, they, they would hire every single computer science graduate in the United States and not have, not meet their hiring needs. Jesus. Um, so Amazon is unique <laughs> in that regard. There are not many companies that can say that. Um, but, True. you know, if you have a solid engineer who can handle the backend components at Amazon, they can handle the backend components anywhere else too. Um, so we're more and more explicitly working backwards from employers as opposed to kind of surveying and saying, what do you need? And let's, you know, let's find where there are intersections. It's, it's, mu it's much more explicit now than it has been in the past. With something like that, with what you just mentioned of how many you know, people Amazon could hire, obviously, why do you think they chose you or how did that come about into that partnership with you guys? You mentioned there's different things. You guys are differentiated in, in different ways, but why, why them with you? I'm wondering about that partnership and how that come about. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that's been in the works for 18 months or so. Um, there are a couple specific, and I don't want to speak out of turn about Amazon. Sure. So I'm going to make sure that everything I'm saying is something they would be comfortable saying. Yeah. Um, but, but broadly speaking, um, they want unique skill sets that universities aren't teaching. And they tried to work through universities to say, hey, you should teach these things. And that's just not like you can't tell a university to change, right? It's just not how it works. Um, most code schools are fundamentally not long enough uh, for so our Amazon program is nine months full time. And you have to do a lot of pre-course work and be ready on day one um, to come in. So you know, wow. if you're to go to a three month code boot camp, you're not even, you know, you're barely getting through the pre-course work and there's another, <laughs> you know, year of training left. Um, so, you know, you had to be flexible enough. Um, Amazon needs scale, so they can't work with a school. They can only train a couple hundred people a year. Um, so really, you know, charging upfront tuition doesn't work in that model. Um, and then they need scale and diversity. Um, so again, upfront tuition not being important allows, you know, I, I, you know last I checked something like 35% of our students are underrepresented minorities. Um, so we're bringing in a whole different, you know, versus computer science programs where it can be 2% in some schools. Um, and you know, it, depending on the cohort, we have 25 to 30% uh, identifying as female and then, you know, another 5% of students who are non-binary um, versus, you know, the average computer science program is like 3%. It's really crazy. Um, so uh, they're looking for ability to create a custom program, scale, uh, diversity, and no upfront cost. And we, I mean, we, we spent a really long time getting down exactly what their needs were and building out something specifically for them. Um, and in the future, we'll, we'll do that more often. Um, there's stuff that I can't talk about quite yet. It's not, um, not entry-level engineering necessarily, but there are companies who have major, major needs. And um, you, you run into this world where cash is not the constraint at most of these companies. They will hire anybody you can give them who can do X. There are just fundamentally not enough people who can do X. Um, so we love working with companies with that problem. That's the problem we solve. <laughs> Yeah, that seems to be a good spot to be in for sure. And yeah. and one thing I, I want to kind of uh, take a step back. Uh, I know you mentioned to that point exactly. So you're making curriculum for them so they can get the people they need specifically. Um, and then even your curriculum in general is longer. It's more in depth. and It's different than other, some of these other places. But having the empathy to understand the people who are going through that, the people who are going from, you know, whatever their salary is now to really trying to up that with going through Lambda school. How did your experience moving to SF, sleeping in your car, influence the empathy and how you understand how students feel, feel, think, et cetera, as they're going through and, and make curriculum for them? Yeah. I mean, I built Lambda School for me. Um, it's what I wish I would have had when I, when I moved to Silicon Valley. Um, so I, you know, code schools were a thing when I taught myself to code. Um, but A, I didn't have, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. And the thought of, you know, taking that out as a loan that compounds at 10%, like, if it doesn't work out, you're done for a long time, right? 
Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, I had conversations with some, one of my first conversations with a VC, uh, the VC was like, well, who doesn't have $12,000? I was like, everybody. everybody a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I, I moved to San Francisco from a town where the median income was like 25000 so, you know, the thought of, oh, just, you know, move to somewhere where there's a code school, take out a $15,000 loan, find a place to live for three months, just fundamentally not an option. Um, but originally my solution was, well, let's just make it, you know, cheap and online. Um, and that's what the original Lambda school was built to do, um, was to, I mean, basically the differentiator was that it was online. And there are a few other code schools that were online, but I thought they all did. And to some extent, most of them still do a really crappy job. Um, and I, I felt like, you know, after I learned to code, I looked at their curriculum, you know, and I'd spent a few years in engineering roles and I looked at the curriculum or the curricula and just like, this is not, this is not the person that I want to hire. That's not what they know. Um, I would have to hire that person and train them for a year before they even can produce anything about, or, you know, six months to a year before they can produce any value. Yeah. And you would talk to employers and they're all saying, yeah, we hate hiring code bootcamp grads because none of them can do what we need to do. Um, so just, okay, well, let's put something online and let's make it longer and more in depth because we don't have the physical constraints of a code school. So we can go longer than 12 weeks, which is, that was the constraint. Um, so taking a step backwards, if you looked at the code school market, it was basically, okay, how much can we possibly charge out of pocket? Um, you know, some could charge up to 18 K, but usually around 12 K, like the market starts to go away. Um, so, okay, we can charge $12,000. How much training can we give somebody for $12,000? That's really, you know, how you backed into what the programs were. Okay. We really need to turn this space over at least four times a year so we can go 12 weeks maximum. So let's see what we can give them in 12 weeks. And hopefully that works. Um, and I mean, it's just a, that's a very real constraint. And those companies were doing the best that they could given those constraints. Um, so we said, okay, well, if it's online, we don't have to worry about space. We save on rent. We, um, you know, we're gonna have to do some other things differently, but we can go six months, uh, you know, two code boot camps back to back. And some of our programs are now nine months or, you know, our part-time programs can be 18 months. Um, and then, so, you know, we can solve that and that, that gives you the time to you know, teach the things that employers actually want. So then you can start to guarantee outcomes. And, you know, I'll never forget the first time I knew that cash was a constraint going in. That was never a question. Um, and we started, you know, talking to people by teaching free classes. So we had thousands of people taking these free classes. Um, and we'd say, Hey, you should, you know, pay us a bunch of money now and then you can enroll. And everybody said, Hey, remember how I'm here? Cause I don't have any money. Um, so we tried, we tried this experiment where we said, if you pay us a thousand dollars up front, we'll float the rest. And if you get hired, you know, you pay us basically full tuition and then the thousand dollars is a deposit. Um, so we sent that email out and I think we had you know, 8,000 people on the list at that time. And normally we'd, you know, we'd email the list and we'd get like one or two people to apply for the full tuition thing. And that time we had like 200 and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is a fundamentally different business, right? Um, so the question is how much of the tuition can you float? If, you know, people can only pay a thousand dollars up front, maybe your costs are eight thousand, nine thousand dollars you're running it super, super lean and super dirty. Um, you know, how can we float that other six or seven? And I was like, at a certain point, you know what, if we're, if we're floating almost all of it, let's figure out how to float all of it. So what if we sent an email to people and said, hey, you know, you can join us for no upfront cost. And that time we got 2000 applications. So like literally a fourth of the email list, which, you know, it was people who were interested in learning to code. Right. Um, so just being able to float them made literally a four, usually you don't get 25% open rate when you send an email. We had a 25% application rate. That's insane. Um, so that's when it was like, okay, we're on to something. We applied to Y Combinator and that was like, okay, this $120,000 that Y Combinator gives us, that's how we can float enough tuition that we can create this new model. Uh, but we were constrained in how many people we could let in. 
So we were saying, well, let's do, you know, 30 people this six months, and then we'll do 30 people the next six months. We can train 60 people a year. Um, and Jeff Ralston, who is our YC partner, was like, what if you start another cohort tomorrow? What if you start another cohort next month? Like, what if you train way more than 60 people? Because he was smart enough to know that you know, 60 people is not, I mean, it's not exciting, right? Yeah. Um, maybe it can fund two or three salaries, but not much. Um, and I was like, well, you know, we don't have enough money to do that now. Because if we hire that person and something isn't working out, I'd have to like, I'd leave a class stranded. And we, you know, we made a promise with ourselves that's something that we would never do. So a lot of code schools end up canceling class halfway through. Um, and so even, you know, times when we've had layoffs or something, we always teach out. Um, but yeah, so, so I said, well, you know, we would need another $250,000 to be able to do, you know, six cohorts. Um, and we don't have that $250,000. And I don't know if we'll be able to raise after demo day. So I'm not like, that's not a risk that I'm willing to take. And Jeff was like, I will personally float $250,000 if you need it. Like, figure it out. <laughs> Make it happen, Austin. <laughs> yeah, which, which speaks a lot to Y Combinator and Jeff. And, you know, we ended up raising $4 million after Demo Day. I had no idea that that's how it worked, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that, that was fundamentally how we approached it. Because we were trying to solve problems, very obvious and very immediate problems for our customer base. But we would talk to other schools and say, well, why don't you do something online? And they'd say, well, online doesn't work. Okay, well, what did you do online? Well, we recorded our classes. We put them up asynchronously so people could view them whenever they wanted, and people didn't do that. Oh, yeah, that's actually super different than what your in-person experience is. That isn't surprising. Yeah. Um, you know, what if you did something that is a low deposit or free upfront? Yeah, we tried that once, um, and you know, people weren't very serious about it. Oh, well, like, how did you vet them? How did you determine, like, yeah, we didn't really do anything. We just said, hey, we're going to let 10 people in for free. And those people didn't succeed. Like, okay. So, you know, we knew that we were getting into a problem space where everybody said it didn't work. But I, I was completely unconvinced that the attempts were real enough that you could determine anything. Um, and to be clear, those are, are still, like, problems you have to solve. You have to, you have to teach online differently than you teach in a physical classroom. You have to vet differently for a zero upfront course than if someone's paying you $15,000. And frankly, you don't care if they show up to class on day two, that's on them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so it's a, a fundamentally different problem set, but that's, that's how we kind of got to the model we have today. Yeah. I think that makes, makes a lot of sense in how, how you got there, why you do it the way you do. And one of the things I want to, to the point of like growing the company as it's scaling and everything is taking off. There's a tweet recently I want to mention of yours. You said there should be a job that's just watching what someone does all day and running behind them, automating as much of it as you can. Take me through why you tweeted that and uh, how you think of automation. Um, yeah, so automation probably isn't the perfect word for it. But I think there's a blog post or a video or tweet storm or something that's halfway developed in my mind that I need to get out somehow. But the high level is if you look at a company that's incredibly complex, that is running by people, right? Um, so take as an example, FedEx, I don't even know, know when they were founded. So 20 years ago, right? When there wasn't very much software, they ran off of principles that were codified and distributed and everybody would read this paper and know this is what we do at FedEx. Um, we're going to go do that thing. And the advantage that software has is a, nobody has to read that paper anymore. You can yeah. tell a computer to do that and the computer will grimly do that forever until it dies. Um, and you know, the fact that it charges nothing is, is, or you know, next to nothing to do that is one thing. But the other advantage that I don't think Silicon Valley or anybody in tech fully appreciates is the level of complexity. So the great thing about code is if you have a production application, every, there is unanimous agreement about what is in that application because that is the lines of code. And even better than that, there are well-established methodologies 
for making changes to that application that go live the instant you make those changes. So there, there's consensus, um, not in just the blockchain sense, they're, you know, just in the database sense. There, there, there is code and everybody can point to that code and say that is what the product is. And if you want to make a change, you, there's a methodology for making that change. You can instantly revert to the old state or keep the new state. You can organize how you make changes. Nobody has to communicate anything. It's just live instantly all the time. And when you look at a hyper-complex business, you know, take Amazon maybe as an example. If Amazon were trying to do what they're doing with people, 0% chance it would work. So actually the, the thing that I think is really special about code is if you do it right, the level of complexity of a task that you can take on is actually orders of magnitude greater than if you don't have code. Um, and maybe there is someone somewhere who has figured out how to train people in real time well enough to do that, but I'd be shocked if it's as good as code. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's actually really, really cool. Um, and one of our problems in the early days is, you know, we didn't write enough code. We had too many people doing things. Um, and that's faster, but it's more brittle. And one of the reasons we had to slow down, you know, we were growing at an insane clip for a while and we had enough money and enough demand on the student side to keep growing is we knew that without codifying our practices and without turning many of our services into products, we wouldn't be able to scale without having a really varied experience. And we were starting to see that with a couple of programs that we launched that, you know, even if we make a change verbally at the highest level, it's not cascading down fast enough. Um, and there are, you know, thousands of management books written about how to make that change cascade down quickly and how to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, but I think some of the most remarkable writing that I've read on management in the past five years is from um, uh, so a book about Amazon's practices. I'd have, I'd have to look it up, but yeah, they basically, uh, but the notion is that if there is communication, that means something is broken or the ideal amount of communication is as little as possible because that means everything is living within the code. And if everybody can point to the code, then you don't have to communicate. That's the ideal state. Um, and it took me a really long time to understand how true that was and how to make that happen. So we're, we're getting there today. Um, but, but yeah. Was there a point, I mean, what was it about the point at which you knew you had to make that change or slow down? Because as I'm thinking of like a founder in a fast growing company, you're just kind of trying to get through everything and hard to kind of step back sometimes. But was there something that helped you, helped you or just kind of felt it? things breaking down or anything else? Yeah, well, at the time, I, it, was, it was the amount of repetition that was required. Um, so, you know, obviously, as a CEO, you're repeating yourself all the time. But there would be little things where it's like, okay, we need to change this, the, the way we teach this in unit two. Um, and, you know, you'd make the change in the curriculum or other stuff. But, and at the time, we had you know, now we have kind of two tracks uh, and building a third. At the time we had five tracks and we had kind of three different continents. So we were in the US and the EU and Africa simultaneously. And those were all staffed differently. And just watching the way those diverged to where, you know, everybody's in agreement on day one. And then three weeks later, you see the US doing something differently than Europe. Um, and those forks are interesting but what that shows you is that there is randomness and decision-making in the product path that, you know, if you, if you scale that out exponentially, that just causes brokenness. Um, so there are a few ways to handle that. You can just highly centralize everything and nothing changes unless it comes from the top down. And we frankly went to that um, for a while. Um, but then you can't, you're not as agile and you feel everything grind to a halt. Um, so the, the companies that have done operation, operationally intensive stuff really well have figured out how to rely on code to make changes that disperse really quickly to different you know, fingers of the company, um, but everybody understands and, and works instantly. That's, a, that's an art. 
Um, but when it works, it works incredibly well. I feel like that's a topic we could talk about for a whole episode on like the, the efficiency and figuring out that on the code side of things. But what I want to get into quickly before we have to wrap up is your investing side of things. So how did you get into starting to invest in companies as well, Austin? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is I I had no right to be investing in companies. I had like no money. And you know, I, I think I wrote my first angel check when it wasn't quite on a credit card, but like, I didn't have any savings. It was just like, oh my gosh, this company is so, I believe in the founder so strongly. I believe in the company so strongly. Um, for my first one, I actually borrowed money from my brother to, to invest, which is not recommended. Um, <laughs> not investment and, advice. Yes. <laughs> no. And then as, you know, as Lambda grew a little bit and I had a little bit of savings, I started investing, you know, $5,000 here, $2,000 there. Um, and, you know, so like my, some of my investments I was most excited about end up being like a thousand dollars and a thousand dollars, like you feel the legal time of ch- cashing the check and making sure you've signed the paperwork is like barely worth a thousand dollars. Right. So you're, you're more, it, that's good for the angel investor. It doesn't help the company much. Um, and so I was talking about that with, um, say hail at Gumroad. And he's like, well, just, just raise a fund. I was like, there's, I have zero time. I'm not going to raise a fund. Um, and he's like, well, the thing that I think has changed significantly is it now takes me less time to invest in a company through AngelList than it did to send a wire in the past or to, li- like to literally write a check. It could, I can invest in a company in literally 30 seconds. Um, and I didn't understand that. And, and I didn't have enough money. So I, I would use AngelList if for the, like, the time saving alone. Um, so it was like, yeah, you should raise a fund. Um, and I was like, I don't, I don't have time to raise a fund. And I talked to Naval about it for a while. And I realized, yeah. like, Naval basically explained to me that, you know, you don't, you don't have to raise a fund, raise a fund. They're now rolling funds and you can just invest in companies and all the software does everything else in the background or the angelist team does the rest in the background. Um, so I was like, okay, well I'll, you know, I'll raise like a quarter million dollars so that I can write $10,000 checks instead of $1,000 checks because $1,000 checks are just insulting. I I don't, I get in trouble for saying stuff like that. If that's (laughs) like, it's not bad, but as a company, I get why that's not ideal. Right. It's challenging. Yeah. And that's actually what, when we were thinking about our angel group, we're launching soon. I guess we'll go. This will actually go live pretty soon, so there, it won't be live yet. But um, we're thinking of that kind of similar thing. We want to allow people to invest smaller checks, but on the company side, have it be one bigger check. So like, you know, so you're trying to solve that problem uh, so that you can get people to invest smaller checks, but at the same time, the company then gets you know 250k, whatever ends up being for that. So it is a tricky mix of yeah. those. And Angelus has done a lot of work there. I mean, they're now they roll off vehicles, yeah. which I think that launched like a, a month ago. So you can. You can take all the thousand dollar checks and they go as one line item on the cap table instead of having a bunch of thousand dollar checks. So that like that solves a lot of it. Um, But then Sahil basically said, well, I'm going to raise a fund for you. Um, (laughs) And I have I have a I have a Google form out and I'm going to tweet it and say this is for Austin's rolling fund. And like we're actually having this conversation on Twitter. Um, And so he tweeted it. And like, I woke up the next morning to like 40 million in commitments. I was like, dude, I'm not, I, I can't do a $40 million fund. So we, we chose an amount and I said, all right, Angelus team, I'll do, you know, started out, it's like a million dollars a year. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been shockingly easy. Uh, I mean, first of all, my job is talking to people who need to hire a lot of engineers every day. Um, so I meet all of the founders that there are to meet basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't have like a deal flow problem. I don't, you know, so I'm, I'm like, I basically 100x my angel investing. Um, it's still super low key. And I tell everybody that invests in my fund, like don't expect frequent updates. Um, you know, you, so, so I've set expectations very well. Um, this, I'm basically just investing my own money and I might send you updates every now and then. Um, good news is, speaking bluntly, I can get into companies that you can't. And I know about companies that you don't. Yep. Um, but you know, I'm not, 
a VC and this is not a traditional fund. So if that's not okay with you, then that's totally fine. I'm, you know, I don't need your money. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah, it makes uh, sense. But, but, it, but it's worked really well so far. Um, what do you, I mean, to that point though, obviously you can get access to our deals because of things you've done, but what are you looking for? Or what, or what excites you about investing in a company or a particular space? Or I'm just curious on how do you kind of view it? Yeah. I mean, my, fundamentally I look at, and this is probably not too different than other people, but um, market is the most important thing for me, or are you growing in a market that you can, so I look for companies that can win a small market and then that market can expand um, because it's really difficult to just go out and win a big market. And there's some markets that after you win, that's it. Um, and I think most of the time market pulls the product and the founder um, instead of the other way around. There are a few special founders where that's not true. Like Elon is Elon. And like it was the electric <laughs> well, car market was not like pulling it out of anybody. Um, it was it was just dead. Very special um, entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is the other thing I look at. It's just who is who is the founder? Um, and there are a bunch of different ways that people describe this. You know, are they a force of nature? Um, one of my mental models is, is this founder going to make it happen with or without me or with or without anybody else? Cause there are founders that you meet and it's like, and I, I view investing a little bit differently than VCs. I view it as in, you know, the, the companies that I invest in, it's, just, it's an honor to just be along for the ride. And I'm super grateful to those founders for like, I don't do any work, for, right? Like they're, they're creating all of the value. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I consider it an honor to be able to put money to work behind them as a, you know, not the reverse. It's not, people don't come to me begging for money. It's either there or it's not. So yeah. Yeah. At that, that point for sure. And I know like we're almost out of time here. So, uh, I will just mention that Charlie Munger, for people wondering about mental models, uh, check out Shane Parrish and Farnham Street and then Charlie Munger stuff. Cause I'm sure you've read that because you keep mentioning mental models. So, uh, I'll tell people to read more for yeah, that. I, had, <laughs> I was lucky enough to have dinner with Charlie, uh, a little while before coronavirus hit. Um, oh really? So yeah. Huge, huge Charlie Munger fan. Yeah. yeah. A lot, a lot Somebody to learn brought me that. along. I, I won't say who or he'll get bombarded but <laughs> there are fair. folks in the valley that are friends with charlie that's that's fair uh that's for another time we can talk about charlie but yeah but austin where can people go to learn more about lambda school connect with you as well uh yeah lambda school.com um i'm austin on twitter um and i am starting a new youtube channel um, oh, that's right. so look for austin Allred on youtube uh i don't have any videos up yet but i've got a bunch of subscribers and that was <laughs> intentional i figured if i had enough subscribers i'd have to create something so that's exactly how the way to do it i, I leveraged <laughs> a, a tweet i saw for a newsletter and i was like oh if i just say i'm starting this newsletter then i'll get people to sign up and sure enough people signed up so it's like yeah. get the demand before you get before you launch for sure yeah exactly <laughs> awesome thank you so much for the time today really appreciate it yeah thank you it was fun Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.